Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, dear ears out there. Hannah McCarthy here. Nick Cavadice here. We are delighted to be bringing you round two of the Unknown History podcast, Civic Style. Last week, we talked about elections and the Electoral College, so make sure to give a listen to that to keep your civic skills sharp. And today in week two, we're talking about what you can do. This is crucial information as we slide into a contentious election season. As hosts of the Civics 101 podcast, it's our job to speak to people who know best and lock down the basics of how our democracy works. As the authors of A User's Guide to Democracy, it's our job to pass the lot of it on to you. And without further ado, here's a little crash course on next-level civic participation. We're talking about getting involved, putting your money or your giant poster board sign where your mask-covered mouth is. First step on the road to making this democracy work for you? Make sure you're heard by the people who are making the laws for your life. Did you know that before he became our fourth president, James Madison served four terms in the U.S. House of Representatives? I did. Madison was a true champion of Congress's responsibility to we the people. He believed the House should have, quote, an immediate dependence on and sympathy with the people. And before I tell you how to win that sympathy, a little reminder. That immediate dependence Madison was talking about? Congress is only in power because we put them there. Even the most cynical of citizens has to admit that there is a baseline reason why Congress has to listen to us. If they don't, we can choose not to vote for them. All right, now we've established who holds the reins. We do. How should you go about being heard by your representatives? It's right there in the First Amendment to our Constitution. We have the right, as American citizens, to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The quickest, easiest way to do that is by phone. But when did calling Congress on the phone like become a thing? Alexander Graham Bell invents the telephone in the late 19th century, and by 1900, Congress was getting hundreds of calls a day. Before information like a senator's phone number was kept strictly confidential, people would call them up at all hours demanding legislation that suited their needs. Unless you're very lucky or very sneaky, or very well-connected. Chances are you don't have a rep's home number these days, so what do you do? You can find the numbers for your representatives at senate.gov or house.gov. You're either going to leave a message or get an assistant or intern on the phone. Don't be insulted. However it may seem, congresspeople are busy. And you can go one of two ways with this phone call. You can demand something, or you can ask for help. Your demand may be for a certain bill that will address a problem in your state or for your representative to vote a certain way on an issue. But a request for help could be like, I'm trying to file something with the Social Security Administration and I'm having issues. Your representatives are your people on the inside. They're not just there to make laws, but also to serve as 
help desk to translate the obscure beast that is federal government. That wouldn't have occurred to me. I always assumed that calling your congressperson was all about demands and complaints. Which, speaking of, by the way, does it work? Does it matter if I call my representative and tell them I want speed limits reduced to 20 miles an hour statewide? It really depends. And lawmakers often say that their drafting or sponsorship of a bill was entirely due to the fact that a constituent brought that issue to their attention. But to that end, some congressional assistants admit that a lawmaker is more likely to be swayed by personal email or letter. And one caveat. If you want your legislator to vote a certain way, well, that is your long shot. This is politics, after all, and you are competing with lobbyists, special interest groups, and the polls. And sometimes the legislator is just going to vote their conscience and there's nothing you can do about it. So what I'm hearing is that this does work and it doesn't work. Is there anything else you can do to sort of step it up, light a fire under these people who are supposed to be representing me? One last option, Nick. The face-to-face. Like a meeting with my senator or representative? Is that seriously possible? I'll own to it. The chances of getting a meeting with a lawmaker themselves, that one is rare. Meetings are difficult to score, period. And chances are you'll sit down with an assistant instead of the person who's really in charge. But know that just like with your call or email or letter, this meeting will be logged and communicated in some way to the legislator. So here's what you do. Call that senator or rep's office, ask to speak with whomever is in charge of the rep's schedule, and request a meeting. Give a little rundown of what you're hoping to talk about. Show up early, come prepared with your clear, concise ask, and make sure you've done your research. Are you asking for a bill that already exists? What has been your rep's voting history up to this point? And in the pre- and hopefully post-COVID-19 era, a handshake helps. That and a little social pressure in the form of, can I count on your vote? I think you're leaving the special sauce out of that one. What's that? That meeting is going to mean a heck of a lot more if you personally represent a demographic that your representative needs to appeal to in the next election. And if you're a kid, look the heck out. Kids are political gold. You have honest-to-God power as a kid asking for a vote for something you believe in. It's a good point. Leverage your power as a constituent who represents hard-to-come-by constituents. Sure, you are up against the lobbying groups, but lobbying groups are not the ones voting for Senator X in the next election, or the ones telling mommy to vote for Senator X in the next election. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, so you can contact your legislator and you could exercise another one of your fundamental First Amendment rights 
to peaceably protest or petition. Now, you mentioned petitioning a little bit earlier. Again, those actual words, Congress shall make no law abridging the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Some people see them as two things, and some people see them as one. Petitioning, which is mostly done online these days or with the help of political organizations or advocacy groups, it was the way we used to interact with our government. It even made its way into the Declaration of Independence. One of the charges against the king, a justification for a revolution, was, quote, our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. There are loads of petition websites out there, by the way. The most popular is change.org. And while it's difficult to measure the victory of a petition, most of the time they do not honestly result in legislation. But they do raise awareness. And once you know something has a lot of support, you can then take it a step further. So petitioning is part of the big soup, the whole mix of lobbying, phone calls, and community outreach. And I would imagine you can throw some protest into that mix. And this is where I want to go next. Can we talk about protest? We have to talk protest. I don't think it's a partisan statement to say that we are a nation born out of protest. The Boston Tea Party, dumping in modern-day worth $1.7 million worth of tea into the harbor, the Sons of Liberty, spurred on by the likes of their leader, Samuel Adams, to do property damage. Property damage against the British was a huge common way to protest. One scholar that we interviewed for our protest episode, Alvin Tillery, said that there have been so far in American history three, only three, movements that changed our country. Boston Tea Party, Shays Rebellion, which began in 1786 over wartime debt and led to the necessity for a new constitution. And finally, the long, still-continuing civil rights movement, which stretches from early abolitionists to its peak in the 1950s and 60s. But what are the rules about it? What has the Supreme Court ruled when it comes to protest? Uh, this gets into a little bit of grimy, foggy territory. And this is something we see again and again when it comes to the Supreme Court protecting our rights. They didn't rule on a case regarding protest until 1919. What was the case? It was Schenck versus the United States. Uh, Schenck was the first in a trio of cases regarding the constitutionality of protest. Uh, Schenck versus the U.S., Getlow v. New York, and Abrams versus the United States. Real quickly about each one, Schenck was Charles Schenck. He was arrested for handing out pamphlets that criticized the draft during World War I. And then Gitlow v. New York, that was Benjamin Gitlow. He had written a left-wing manifesto that called for the overthrow of the government. And finally, Abrams versus United States. Jacob Abrams and some others threw leaflets out of a window that advocated workers in ammunition factories to go on strike. But what is significant about these three cases is that they all lost. Those actions of speech and protest were not considered protected by the Constitution. So when, if ever, did the court rule an act of protest protected under the Constitution? Uh, I'll give you the bad news first, McCarthy. Two major cases that protected protest were both about protecting actions done by the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. Brandenburg v. Ohio in 1969 ruled that members of the Klan could advocate violence at their rallies. And in 2003, in Virginia v. Black, 
the court ruled that laws banning the burning of crosses were unconstitutional. 2003. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that was the bad news first. Where's my good news? There have been pretty much two, count them, two non-racist cases that the court ruled uh, an act of protest was protected. And they're two of our favorites, Tinker v. Des Moines in 1969. That's where a group of school children in Des Moines were expelled for wearing black armbands to protest the deaths on both sides during the Vietnam War. Uh, The court ruled that their action was protected and freedoms of speech and expression don't stop at the schoolhouse gate. The second case was Texas v. Johnson, where Gregory Lee Joey Johnson burned a flag outside the Republican National Convention in Dallas in 1984. The court ruled in that one that actions can be protected speech if they convey a message. And there's not much clearer message than the burning of a flag. Last thing, you wrote about this in the book, Hannah. Are there any last words or advice on protests that you want to share with the audience? Well, like we've established, you do have a First Amendment right to do it. Uh, You should probably do it in a public space unless you want to be at the mercy of the whims of the private property owner of the space where you're protesting. It can help to have a permit. It can help to notify the police beforehand. But the thing that you really must know before you go out and protest is that your safety and your life are paramount. We once had a guest tell us, don't use this as an opportunity to give a police officer a lesson in your First Amendment rights. Get home safe and in one piece. Well, that's about the best piece of advice, I think, to end an episode on. We'll catch you next time. Get home safe. Thanks for listening to Unknown History on Quick and Dirty Tips. We'll be back next week with part three of our four-part series based on our new book, A User's Guide to Democracy, with a rundown of the powers that be in this nation the three branches of government. You can follow Quick and Dirty Tips on Twitter or search for Quick and Dirty Tips on Facebook for more practical advice to help you do things better. We'll see you next week. Your Space Coast vacation is preparing for liftoff. Start counting down now. 10, 9, 8, 7. It's time for a beach vacay that feels like heaven. 6, Five, four, come explore Melbourne and the beaches. Three, two, one. It's time for some rocket-filled fun. Count down to your best beach vacation ever on Florida's Space Coast. Launch your planning now at visitspacecoast.com.